Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett. And I'm Juliette Starrett. And you're listening to the Ready State Podcast. You got it! You better stop it! This episode of the Ready State Podcast is brought to you by our friends at Momentus. Today, I'm going to talk about one of the things that Momentus has done, which is make bicarbonate loading possible. If you have been an athlete for a minute, you remember the old protocols where you could take a bunch of sodium bicarbonate, and what would happen was that you would be able to buffer higher levels of circulating lactate, which would mean that theoretically in your muscles, you could perform more work without sort of having that burn slow you down. And we knew it was a neuromuscular aspect. In fact, let me quote Brad Wilkins here as we kind of talk about it. As the first line of defense pr for preserving acid-based balance during exercise, bicarbonate is a critically important electrolyte for optimally neuromuscular, optimizing neuromuscular function. In fact, over 40 years of scientific research has overwhelmingly supported the benefit of sodium bicarbonate ingestion for improving acid-based balance. The problem is always that there's been a gastrointestinal distress as a common side effect. Well, it turns out, guess what? Momentus figured out how to make bicarbonate an easy thing to add to your training through a lotion. So they invented this thing called PR lotion, and it's the first and only topical lotion to, to deliver sodium bicarbonate directly through the skin, which means you get to go around the gut, which means you can tolerate higher levels of work with less delayed onset muscle soreness. So the way I use it in my own practice is that I use it on big, big efforts. So when I'm going long or I know I have huge intervals, that's the day where I say, hey, maybe I can get a little bit more work done in here. So don't take my word for it. Take a look at the thousands of athlete responses to their support of PR Lotion. In fact, it first came to me through a, a national champion cyclist who's like, dude, you got to try this. And I was like, holy crap, this works. So it turns out I'm a huge fan. For more information, go to thereadystate.com slash momentous and use the code TRS for 20% off your first purchase of awesomeness. This episode of The Ready State is brought to you by Virtual Mobility Coach. This may sound crazy, but last year, I kind of tried to clone my husband. Awesome. Only kind of, though. You see, Kelly gets dozens of requests every day for help. And even though he wants to give everyone his personal attention, there just aren't enough hours in the day. So I typed in how to clone a human being into Google. Just kidding, but in seriousness, what we did do was create our virtual mobility coach platform. It's like having a virtual Kelly Star ad in your pocket. Which obviously everyone needs. I mean, that's right. I personally create over 600 mobility protocols for the virtual mobility coach. So the platform can help you with almost any movement problem imaginable. For example, let's say you're in pain. The VMC will show you a diagram of the human body. All you have to do is click where it hurts. And from there, we'll serve you up a customized pain prescription we call Mobility RX. The virtual mobility coach can also help you warm up and cool down when you exercise. Every day, we provide fresh pre- and post-workout mobilizations for more than four dozen sports and movements. Plus, on your days off, we even have a video called Daily Maintenance to help you relax and recover so you can get back 100% in record time. And best of all, right now, you can try Virtual Mobility Coach free for two whole weeks, so you can check out everything it has to offer without paying a penny. Claim your free 14-day trial of Virtual Mobility Coach now. Go to thereadystate.com slash free trial. That's thereadystate.com slash free trial. And we'll see you inside. Diana Cap is a journalist with an MBA from Stanford University. Her work has appeared in most major media outlets, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, San Francisco Magazine, the San Francisco Chronicle, Elle, Marie Claire, SunsetOutside.com, 
Oh, the Oprah Magazine, and many more. She has crisscrossed this country writing for and about empowered girls, girls who expect to be leaders, founders, and inventors. Diana's first book, Girls Who Run the World, was published in 2019 and was endorsed by Madeleine Albright and featured in Forbes and on NPR's Marketplace. On April 5th, 2022, in time for Earth Day, her second book, Girls Who Green the World, was released and covers 34 of the most revolutionary environmental changemakers at this critical moment in time. I think you're really going to enjoy our conversation with Diana. Hey, Ready State listeners, if you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. Diana, welcome to the Ready State podcast. We're so excited to talk to you about all this awesome stuff you have going on. Hello, Juliet and Kelly. I'm so excited to be on. I've always wanted to be on the Ready State. <laughs> oh, my Lord. Uh, well, fortunately, that bar is low and uh, you, you come in very high. So, uh, you know, what we realize is that we're like one amazing book isn't enough. We were just been waiting around for you for, to put out a second amazing book, which is just launched. And uh, finally, I think your bona fides are good enough to uh, hang out with the uh, starrettes. <laughs> I'll try. I'll see if I can hang. I'll see if I can hang. So I think we're going to go in reverse chronological order because you've had quite a month. You just launched your second amazing book, Girls Who Green the World. And I'm wondering if you can tell the Ready State audience a little bit about what it is and what you've been up to for the last month, getting it out there into the world. Girls Who Green the World is a compendium of profiles of amazing women working in sustainability. They are doing things like turning mushrooms into leather and bioengineering protein grown in microbes so we don't have to use methane producing cows. They are putting solar panels on 600,000 rooftops. And it's a super diverse set of women in every corner of the environmental movement. There's activists, artists, people that are making glitter out of eucalyptus leaves. And my thought is that a very negative tone has sort of overtaken the conversation around climate. Everything is, this is inevitable. There's nothing more that we can do. It's gloom and doom. And that's making people and particularly young people feel a lack of motivation, lack of desire to lean into all these problems that we just have to solve. And so the book is, I call it an oasis of positivity. So it's doers and change makers and innovators, and they're not sitting around talking about how impossible all this is. They're just getting to work and solving problems, which I think is a really good message to send at this moment. I think so it is. Think and I see that I see that even in my own young daughters where they know that this is going to be the issue of their lifetime, but they're like, well, how do we, where do we start? Where do we begin? How do we incorporate this into our lives? How did you discover all of these women? How did you go about finding them and their work? Because, you know, there's a lot of terms I just want to add that I've heard from you around the writing and promotion of this book. Like, like maybe I've been living under a rock, but I'd never really heard about or thought about fast fashion until you and I talked about it. So how'd you find them? And then maybe even can you tell us a little bit about some, a little more detail about some of the women in this book and what they're doing? Sure. So 
I was a complete novice as far as my knowledge about the environmental situation. So I've obviously been reading the news and following along, but I did not know when I started writing this book that fossil fuels are actually degraded plants and animals that have been decomposing and they're under a layer of the earth. And that's how we get oil and gas. Did you guys know that? I did know that, but only because my dad is a climate guy. So I'm not sure that, I don't know, you knew that, Kels. Did you know that? I'm not sure that's common knowledge, though. Okay. Anyway, that's just a good example of seeing that I was way back at the baby beginning of having (laughs) to figure out what any of this meant. I have very tough critics in my three kids. So I was led to the book by having teenagers who are really sad, angry, and mad at our generation for being left, you know, this situation and their view of sort of our lack of attention to it. And let me just say that I'm personally friends with your children and they're not mad at me. They may be mad at Juliet, but not me. I'm just going to exclude myself from (laughs) mad at us. And I can also confirm they're a tough audience. They are a tough audience. audience. And a smart audience. They are. And they really helped me in the writing of the book. They helped me watch out for traps like greenwashing, which again, wasn't necessarily a term I was that familiar with, but that's kind of this faux effort to show and to, you know, to take actions that are more symbolic than real and in order to have a good public relations face on your effort. And so they helped me look out for that. They read the manuscript and they would scribble cringe wherever there was a very annoying (laughs) phrase and particularly with exclamation points. So I learned that to teenagers, anything with an exclamation point deserves a cringe. So back to how I chose the women. <laughs> I'm writing that. <laughs> I'm like, right me now. too. I literally was like, <laughs> I was like, noted, noted, noted. No, but they really did save my bacon. They took out so many, you know, it's hard to write for teenagers as someone who's in middle age and I'm young at heart, but I definitely, <laughs> you know, don't have the terminology down. And when you attempt to have their terminology, it really comes off badly. So it's better to just go with kind of simple language, which is what I've done. But I, one of the ways that I figured out to find women in the book is through friends of mine who are social impact investors. And one of those people is Robin Donahoe and her firm is Draper Richards Kaplan. And they do a lot of seed funding of very early stage players in regenerative farming, in plastic alternatives, in ways to address fast fashion. So I got ideas from them and from another firm similar to them. And my idea was looking for people that are sort of under the radar. I wanted to find women that we don't know about. And the whole idea is to give them more airtime and shine some sunshine on them so we can know about them. And I also, every time I would interview one of these women, I would ask them who they would put in a book like this. And that was obviously a a great way to, to get ideas and just a lot of research. I'm a journalist, so I know how to Google till the cows come home and find interesting (laughs) people and lists that are interesting, like the grist list. What's the grist list? 
That's a publication that writes a lot about environment. And every year they put out a list of the most exciting up-and-comer environmental players. One of the things that we talked about when Girls Who Run the World, which we'll get to, came out, is that you said, which is your first book, uh, In My World, since I've known you, one of the things you said was that a lot of the entrepreneurs in that or the women in that book who became entrepreneurs were accidental entrepreneurs. They didn't set out to build a business. They set out to solve a problem. That kind of surprised you a little bit. And they had to kind of build up a business and business acumen as a side effect of trying to solve a problem. And we, I know Juliet and I can relate to that as an attorney and a physical therapist who are suddenly like, oh, you know, business. Did you have that similar experience here? Is that a universal truth that oftentimes people aren't thinking about sustainable business are thinking about solving a problem and that the these women who are greening the world were in the same category as those other people who didn't set out to start a business but set out to solve a problem? Very much so. So a great example is Greg Renfrew, and she has a really big cosmetics company called Beauty Counter. And I mean, I think it's worth maybe a billion dollars. I know she just got a big investment or partnership. So she started out bathing her kids and recognizing all these um, lotions and potions that she was rubbing all over them. And she just started to think in her head, like, what the heck am I putting into their bloodstream that's obviously going through their scalp and their skin? And she started learning a, a little bit about how her cosmetics regulated, and she learned not at all. But I asked her, you know, how much did you know about any of this when you got started? And her quote to me was, I knew nothing about cosmetics, nothing about direct selling, nothing about marketing, nothing, nothing about nothing. <laughs> and so, you know, she's, she had this personal problem that she, that made her just very uncomfortable thinking about her own children. And that's often, in my view, that's really how the, the most interesting entrepreneurs come about is they have a passion for a problem. It has to be personal because you really have to kind of go to the end of the earth to solve these problems. It's so difficult to get a business going. And so it's a lot of instances of that in the book. People that, you know, a young woman, so interesting, Caitlin Magenthal and her company is called Pulp Pantry. And she actually just joined me on my trip in Chicago. She's from the North Shore of Chicago. And she went off to college at USC. And that's a LA place where juicing is really cool and really something that students are into. So in her first year, she went to a friend's house and she saw her juice a carrot. And she noted that like one millimeter of carrot juice came out and this big pile of refuse went in the garbage can. <laughs> and she had just been working at a community garden with these young Title I public school students, most of whom had never eaten a fresh tomato or carrot. And so she was thinking all about how we're throwing away this byproduct that's full of fiber and vitamins. And the next day, she called up 10 local juiceries in the LA area. And she got these bins at Target and she just went around in her car and picked up all the goop. And then she started experimenting. And now she has pulp pantry chips, which are, they have five grams of fiber per serving, which is significant. And they are 
50% made from vegetables. And she dries them out kind of into a flour. And then she bakes them into these chips. And she's got other ideas. She's getting into cereal next because all the cereals are just corn-based. Can I get an amen? Yeah, can I get an amen because Kelly and I love cereal? (laughs) Yeah, it's a great idea. And she was telling me in Chicago some of the potential partners that she's talking to now as she grows, she's talking to McDonald's because for their Happy Meal, they slice up the apple slices, but 40% of the apple gets tossed. And she was talking about baby carrots. They come from three babies come out of one carrot. But think of all that excess around the babies that are just getting tossed. And she was talking about broccoli and cauliflower florets in the supermarket, packaged up so nice and neat and clean. But you just get the flower and you're not getting any of the stems, which are, you know, have all the, they're tasty. Do you think it's an advantage for these women or for entrepreneurs potentially to come in with such a different view, a different experience, a different skill set, a different set of tools to solve these problems? Or do we, I mean, I, I see what one of the things you're trying to do with this book is sort of plant seeds and incubate this. So it's a way of seeing the world. But do you think it's a competitive advantage sometimes to just start from scratch and sort of look with really clean eyes? I do think that can be an advantage. I think Caitlin, in her instance, was taken into the Target incubator. And that was what launched her. She never would have been able to do this Mm -hmm. without that kind of very specialized knowledge that she was able to take advantage of in all these different areas. But I do think coming at problems with fresh eyes is helpful. I remember as a young writer being assigned to do a portrait of Gavin Newsom. And my editor specifically said, I'm choosing you for this because I know you don't know anything about local politics in San Francisco. I was, I didn't, it wasn't an area I was, you know, familiar with. And so he just said, you're going to come to this with really fresh eyes. You're going to be reading, you know, (laughs) good luck. (laughs) I remember I went over to Jamie and Stacy Slaughter's house and I said, you know, explain San Francisco local politics to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're like, and go. Sorry, TLDR. Go. Um, TikTok it. I have 15 yeah. seconds. Go. 15 seconds. TikTok. Okay, so I mentioned it briefly, but I don't know why this particular thing piqued my interest so much, but maybe because I had never heard of it. But can you tell our audience a little bit more about fast fashion and who you feature in the book, what they're doing? Because I have to say that just learning about it from you, I've been way more conscious about my own Mm. fashion habits. Especially with teenage daughters. Yeah. Fast fashion is most fashion. And basically what it means is when we were kids, we had two fashion seasons a year where new clothes would come into White Flint Mall and I could go around and, you know, (laughs) shop the new season. And I loved clothes. I was really into clothes. Now, clothes come out 50 times a year. And we are throwing away clothes on average, Americans, after using them for six months. We Americans, on average, toss 80 pounds of clothing every year. So we have come to view clothing as disposable. And it is produced extremely cheaply in 
mostly in developing countries, mostly by labor that's, you know, treated very poorly. And it has huge environmental impact um, because there's all the gas that's used to ship all these materials to the Far East and then back over here. And then there's a lot of rinsing that comes with apparel and all those toxins go into the water. It requires a ton of water. So these companies, they price things so cheaply because of how they make them that it pretty much makes it impossible to manufacture in the United States or in Europe to compete with those other brands. And teenagers, there's a trend on TikTok right now that is hashtag haul, H-A-U-L. And basically it's, you know, you watch teenagers take out all their packages from a shopping spree of fast fashion. And the the brag is how much you could buy in one afternoon. And so it's really not a good thing. I mean, the whole theme for me of this book is about consumption and how we just are, we are just over consuming for our planet. And we have to start rethinking consumption. That's the number one message I think I want to spread and that really hit me hard over the head is we went in the 1700s from a population of 760 million people on the planet to now 7.6 billion people on the planet. And our planet just can't support the kind of use of resources that we are currently using. So fast fashion is just a good example, because if you think about clothing becoming disposable, it really doesn't make any sense. And young people care so much about identity. And so they really want to wear what their friends are wearing and shop the trends. So it's becomes kind of an insidious thing. Can I just add one factoid? I mean, Caroline does like to shop at this one shockingly cheap fast fashion place. And then, you know, it comes in a box and then every little $5 t-shirt she's bought, which is like a half shirt, is in a plastic bag. And then right. all those plastic bags are in the box with plastic more like it's like just the box. I mean, the packaging, just yeah. Just the packaging alone on the fast fashion that I've seen my own kids get. I'm like, wow, this is bad. What was the, some of the solutions to fast fashion besides, you know. Consuming less. Telling my daughter, you know, no. I mean, like <laughs> what, what, give us some examples of, because I, I want to come back to this consumption idea. It's very interesting and notable, definitely a central core idea. But what are what is this person that you interviewed sort of how are they solving this? So there's a couple of examples of approaches. One is a lot of brands right now are starting these renewed lines. So did you know that when you a lot of women particularly when they order clothing online, they order three sizes. They are not sure if they're a four, a six, or an eight. So they order all three. And then when they return the two, those things typically never make it back into circulation. It's just logistically too difficult for these brands to do that. So that stuff typically goes to landfill. So the companies that are or fixing small errors that happen during production, like one stitch is wrong or one button is missing or something gets dirty in the dressing room with lipstick. One of the companies in my book, Renewal Workshop, has these Sotex and these really advanced washing machines. And they are, they get hired by a brand like Prana and North Face. And they're, you know, one to 3% of 
the product they're now able to get back out and onto the floor for sale, but it's sold as a renewed line. So it's something that, you know, Mm. the brands can kind of, it's something positive for the brands. It has a good image and all the brands are doing it. It's amazing. Every single one is starting to come out with a renewed line. Then there's an example, this company called Pareto, and they call themselves like the Marie Kondo of apparel. And they are just trying to get down to five or six core elements, like a black t-shirt dress and a pair of leggings and a cute sweatshirt. That's all they're going to put out for the whole season. And everything they're going to produce, they are going to manufacture it in the United States. And they call it a farm to closet. It's kind of a um, play on the farm to table. But it's like you're going to know who's growing the cotton and who's spinning it. And you know all those things take place in different places. And that's one of the reasons that apparel is so messy. You can't track the supply chain. So you don't know kind of what hazards have happened along the way. And in Berkeley, there's a really cool company that is bioengineering dye for blue jeans. So they take a piece of DNA from the indigo plant, which is how we used to dye blue jeans a long, long time ago before chemical formulations came in. And they grow those up in microbes, which divide quickly. And then those microbes start secreting the dye. And the first person that they're working with is Adriano Goldschmied, which is AG Jeans, which I'm sure your kids know. Yeah. And they're going to do all colors. And that's kind of a getting the toxins out because the toxins are ruining the water so much. So someone told me that the rivers in China, the fish, they're, it's changing the sex of fish. The, you know, their hormones are being impacted by these toxic chemicals that are being dumped. We, um, as I woke up today thinking about this interview, you told me a story last summer, the summer before, someone you were interviewing for this book had reduced their consumption and all of their waste products to fit in a single bell jar in the course of a year. Am I remembering that right? Yeah, she actually doesn't end up being in my book, Lauren Singer. And Lauren, I hope if you're listening to this, you feel really badly because you treated me terribly. I had three <laughs> interviews set up with you and you never showed up. But this, there is a whole movement called the zero waste movement. And just the other night I met someone, she calls herself the zero waste team. That's her handle on Instagram. And she's kind of following that way of living, which is doing everything you possibly can to change out your lifestyle. From, you know, you save the butt of the zucchini and boil it into veggie broth. You know, you save that stuff, the onion clippings and the little carrot peelings, and then you boil that into something. You change out all your shampoo. So you're having shampoo and conditioner in bar form. You get, you know, all the glass bottles to replace everything, you know, just everything you do is, you know, you don't buy from Amazon because it's going to come in that packaging and that's not going to fit in your little tiny jar. So instead you like buy in a thrift shop and you don't take a bag. I feel like this book is Girls Who Green the World aimed at sort of a generation of people in a, who are coming into their power, starting to make decisions about how they are in the world, you know, planting a, a consciousness seed. I feel like 
there is a real opportunity that kids are actually a lot more sophisticated than we think around some of these complicated, nuanced conversations. And of course, there are exceptions to that, fast fashion, et cetera. In your experience in this, in talking to schools now, have you felt that A, kids are receptive or they sort of understand this intuitively, but they don't know what to do? I mean, are our teens just consumers or are they starting to recognize that they're inheriting this? Because you sort of opened by saying that your kids were a little mad at us and rightfully so, but, and I just blame the boomers. So it's really easy. I just shuck it on them. But um, what has been your experience in understanding kids' role in this and their sort of ability to adopt this in their own lives? I think they're so savvy. I mean, they've been hearing about this and reading about this for a, their entire lives, basically. And, you know, you meet a lot of teens. It's really trendy to be vegetarian right now. There's a lot of teens who, because truly, I know you guys are meat fans, but meat is one of the top ways that you can, as an individual, make a change that impacts the planet. And I heard this statistic that if we all Americans ate one less hamburger a week, it would be equivalent to taking 10 million cars off the road in terms of emissions. But the kids, I got this great email from a young girl after I visited Grace Church School in New York. And she said, I really loved your talk because we talk so much about the problems and very few people ever talk about the solutions. And that is the same issue that caused a woman in my book, Daniela Fernandez. She founded a sustainable ocean alliance. It's a seed fund to back small companies working on ocean health. And, you know, she has one that does wave power and so many that are using seaweed in interesting ways, like to, you know, as a plastic alternative and also to feed to animals because it reduces the methane in their belches. But yeah, the kids, they really are savvy. I mean, in fact, I was a little bit afraid to go out and talk to them because I wondered if it was just <laughs> going to be too elementary because they, you know, they know all about the food waste problem and why it's so important that we cut down on air travel and the fact that that's already happening in Europe. You know, they're following these stories. I feel like as a, as a child, I had two concerns. The hole in the ozone... <laughs> Right. That was like yeah. a universal. Lisa don't, and then head. don't do drugs. No. Quicksand. <laughs> like those were the two mm -hmm. things that like I had, you know, you weren't you guys obsessed with quicksand yeah, as a yeah, kid? Yeah, you didn't have nuclear war on there. You had quicksand. No, I definitely quicksand was not on the, my top list. So I I'm I'm Wait, this is you Kelly, you brought, in because, because you brought up ozone, that's a great um prompt for me because my book opens with the story of this scientist, most people have not heard of her, named Susan Solomon. She's a professor at MIT. But when she was a young NOAA scientist, that was the mid 80s. And that was the time when we were all freaking out about the ozone that we were going to fry because we were getting, you know, these radioactive rays were coming through this big hole in the layer that was supposed to protect us from the sun. And she did the fundamental work. She went to Antarctica she stood out in minus 40 degree temperatures. She told me her eyes would freeze shut. She had to keep them open because she had sawed a hole in the roof and she was bringing in moon and sunlight into a prism in a spectrograph and using that to 
look at the light waves, which told her what was the components of chemical components in the atmosphere. And she found chlorine dioxide at a hundred times normal levels and sounded the alarm on that. And that produced the Montreal Protocol, which is the only time in the Earth's history that every nation has signed on. We banned chlorofluorocarbons. And now when I go out to the schools, the first thing I ask the kids is, have you even heard of the ozone problem, the ozone hole? And maybe a tenth of the hands go up. It's so solved. And those kids don't even have Aquanet hairspray. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. That um, was the... Okay, so... Doc, and they don't I have s- spray deodorant. <laughs> yeah, I think or I guess they do. There's Actually, the reason that we were able to move off CFCs, this is interesting. What Susan Solomon told me is when there is a practical alternative that can easily be substituted in, and so there was a chemical that was Mm. not CFCs, it was like NFCs or whatever. And so then we started using that. And that's one of the things that makes me feel positive right now because the price of clean energy has dropped 70 or 80% in the last decade, wind and sun energy. And so we are moving to a place where it actually would be practical for us to move off fossil fuels. If we could just get out of this, you know, way of being so stuck and kind of unable to change, but as economically, it makes sense now. So I have sort of a two-part question. The first is, is there a story, a conversation, an experience you had either working with one of these women or writing this that surprised you? And then the second part is, how have you, Diana, changed your own habits? I mean, I understand the overarching theme here is like, how can we reduce consumption? But like, what are the specific things you've done or your household has done based on specifically doing these interviews and learning what you've learned through this book? Well, I mean, I'm, I don't hold myself up by any means as some exemplary, you know, greenie, because I'm just learning. And I view, you know, one of the ways that I'm contributing is by going out and, you know, spreading this message. But I will say I have really been impacted in terms of my thinking about all the things that I just quickly buy when I don't even look to see if maybe I could, you know, like I would just buy it on Amazon before I would sort of bother to look for it, you know, if it was hard to find. Or fixing things like sending back, you know, David just sent back his climbing shoes and had them resold. And I just, I've been doing more of that, like taking my boots in to be redone. And I did some clothes swapping this year, like with my running friends for our holiday party instead of white elephant, which is what we usually do. And so we like buy a bunch of stuff at Walgreens and have like 15 minutes of laughter. But then it's just a bunch of junk that is goes into the trash. We did a really fun, you know, bringing our old clothes. And I'm definitely eating less meat, you know, just thinking more about airline travel, trying to think about, could we take a U.S. vacation that would be just as fun? I don't want to think about these things. I mean, it's such a bummer, but that is just the truth. And once you start thinking about it and reading about it and talking about it, there's kind of no going back. I really do feel that way. Let me ask you this. I always feel like there's a competing pressure 
between, you know, like my mother-in-law and my father-in-law trapping their gray water right from their showers and pouring on their plants. And the fact that we are watering a billion almond trees. Do you think, and this is, I mean, my naivete, I believe, let me just say, I believe that aggregating a ton of behavior changes and viewing the world on our consumption differently will have a net positive impact. But do you feel like we have to simultaneously have a top-down approach and a bottom-up approach to see meaningful change here? I do. I mean, but I do also think that everything is trade-off. So even if you take the example of, you know, they're making this new bioengineered way of creating dye for blue jeans, but in order to shake the vats that they're growing those microbes up in, it takes probably more Mm. energy than it would to create those chemical mixtures. And so I think that is one of the things that I've really taken away. There's no perfection. There's no finding the solution out there that has no net consequences on the environment. They all have consequences on the environment. But I think this new mindset of thinking about solutions that will have a lighter impact on the planet is a way we just have to start thinking and baking into our thinking. And, you know, someone that's going to start a company today, I, I really believe that they don't have to be a green company. They're going to have to think about, you know, when they create their product, when they create their packaging, when they build their headquarters, you know, when they think about their supply chain and their resources, they're going to be thinking about environmental issues. They, it's just, to me, it's. So even if it's not solutions, efficiency, like we can, that the total aggregated efficiency and just improvements in the process are, are important steps towards sort of you know, leaving this place in a better place. Because it really, I, I feel you. We just read this book this summer, Ministry for the Future, which is about near environmental collapse. And Julie and I, as we were driving through, maybe even home from Idaho, we were driving through the fires. And then we were like, oh my Lord. I mean, these West Coast fires going from climate change. And then just yesterday, you know, one of the, the you sent me an article about heat wave in India, which is like how the book opens. And I was like, oh, it's all coming true. This is like, <laughs> this was actually a biography of our near times, you know? So- it's really interesting. You pivoted from sort of this idea of, you know, women who are running the world, girls who green the world. Where do you think this is going to lead you for your next sort of understanding of or the next piece of what you want to talk about or, or illuminate? Like, what are we missing? Because I think you've really done a really beautiful job in this book of sort of illuminating possibility. What does that lead on to? Could I just frame that a little bit? Maybe you could tell our listeners about your first book. Sort of tee that up and then answer Kelly's question. (laughs) Okay, so the first book is Girls Who Run the World. And the concept of that was, it's not dissimilar to this book, but it was just an attempt to have these modern day role models for young women who are sort of the pioneering women of modern day because we have all these books about Marie Curie and Amelia Earhart. I mean, great books for young people, but we have now kind of modern equivalents. And I wanted to find a way to help inspire young people. And two weeks before that book came out, Forbes published one of their famous lists. And this one was titled America's 100 Most Innovative Leaders. 
and it was 99 men and one woman. And Mm. it just reminds us that it's, this is such a modern problem. Like we still need to be holding up female role models in every field because they just get so much less airtime. There's statistics like, you know, 90% of op-eds in the newspaper are written by men. The data just doesn't, it doesn't look that good. You know, even women, they are the majority of college graduates, but they don't make it to get funding from venture capitalists. That's still only 2% of all the funds that go to, to startup ventures go to women-founded ventures. So even though I've now done two books about spotlighting women and talking about this issue, I think we could talk about it for a lot longer because we're not really making a lot of progress. Well, it seems like one of the angles you've had is to really try to say in both of these instances, like, look at all these role models who are either doing interesting work entrepreneurially or for climate change or in the environment. And, you know, I think the goal, right, is for you to sort of create a space to inspire young women and give them an opportunity to say, hey, you're right, it isn't. I mean, I even look at my own kids in like fourth grade, they're supposed to do some like thing where they stand up like a woman in history that is inspiring. And literally they are, they're doing these historical figures that are a hundred years old. So I assume that was kind of your goal was to, to figure out a way to inspire young women or all women, honestly, because I found both of your books to be really inspirational just as a woman out there doing things. So did you sort of set out or has that just been how it has turned out in the end? No, that's definitely, that was the objective. I mean, starting with the first book, that was very explicitly my goal. And I think it comes from a really deep place in me, a person who as a young person, I really didn't have a strong sense of self. I didn't have a strong sense of ambition. I don't think there was high expectations of me career-wise, particularly in my family, a lot of sort of gender norms. So, and I had a really circuitous career, like trying to find my way to something that I actually cared about. And if I could leave something to the young people, it would be some guidance in showing what's possible, inspiring to aim high and believe you could really have an impact. I think you know all the data about how young girls go through adolescence and they lose their sense of self and their belief in what's possible for them. It drops during adolescence. And so, you know, we really are watching a whole generation of young women who haven't changed all that much from when we were girls. Hmm. Some things are changing. I don't want to be too dire, but I still think a lot of those dynamics remain. We still live in a society that is men kind of hold the, you know, the power and the money and, you know, girls don't tend to be that comfortable dealing with money, for instance. That's still a thing. So I think it's been a couple of years since Girls Who Run the World came out. Have you kept in touch with all the women you feature? Are you going to do like a where are they now <laughs> second edition? That would be, that's a cool idea. I'm searching around <laughs> for my next idea, but I haven't kept in touch with all of them, but I really made some good friends. And so recently, Natasha Case, she has a business in LA called Cool House Ice Cream. Mm. And she, I say she Respect. was a woman, 
She's a woman who runs the world, who, who has turned herself into a woman who greens the world because she just sold her business to something called the Urgent Company. And she's going dairy free. And it's not nut milk. It's like they're producing, you know, one of these alternative proteins that seems to be increasingly popular. And she swears that the ice cream is still, you know, that she has really high standards and and this dairy-free ice cream is going to be just as good. Well, since uh, most of the world turns out not to be white people, you know, I think non-dairy alternatives, I think, is really progressive. I yeah. we have so many friends who just do not tolerate dairy. I love that idea. We have a daughter who has sort of grown up around women who are running businesses and sort of see the world a little bit differently. Georgia is launching a cookie business because I think she sees some of the benefits from having some agency and some control. And do you think that part of this, your book is just that we need to model behavior that if you just don't see a road or haven't ever been shown that there's another road or someone's that in front of you, it's just harder to do that. Is that, I feel like I really want to go to one of your talks because in here, how just the consciousness change, I remember all of those the whole school gathers in an auditorium and sits on the crisscross applesauce and then someone comes and talks. And I mean, I remember every single one of those. So, I mean, Lisa's nodding her head. Yes, too. I mean, is that sort of where you are right now? or And what kind of questions are you getting from the audience? I think that whole adage, you can't be what you can't see, mm. is it really is true. And we just pick up so many signals unconsciously about who's allowed to hold what jobs. and. So I do think the more that we hold up women doing all kinds of interesting, innovative jobs, it's going to influence our girls and what they choose to do. What you're saying about Georgia, I think there's almost nothing more empowering for a young girl than creating her own business, making money learning all the things that go wrong and then in like problem solving day and night, which is what you do when you start, even if it's a tiny cookie business, it's like, how are you going to get your ingredients and how are you going to make it the cost work out? And how are you going to keep the warm cookies from melting the plastic bags you put them in or, you know, whatever it is. And I just, I love that message of be a little entrepreneur because I think you learn so many skills doing that. Like, being able to present, to sell your idea, you know, to pitch something. All of those skills are so good. Recognizing how much being personable, you know, is a part of business and how it, you know, helps you succeed in business. It's just a quick story about Georgia. It's been interesting to watch her because, of course, she has on her website that it's all organic and sustainable. And I was like, hey, just FYI, like you say that, but, you know, have you actually gone and priced out all the ingredients and made sure that you can actually afford to have all the ingredients and products and packaging and everything that you want and then actually make a profit still. And she was like, oh yeah, I actually need to like run the numbers on that. So anyway, oh, yeah. it's interesting oh, yeah, to watch her thing. try to solve those problems, right? <laughs> She's like, it's easy to write organic and sustainable on your website. And then to be organic and sustainable, you, you know, there's a lot of considerations that go but in there. This is the same kid who came home after listening to the CEO of Strauss Creamery present to her school at a sort of a business leadership kind of thing that was happening. And she came home and she's like, we're only drinking Strauss milk from now on. Glass bottles. She's like, they feed the cows, you know. Yeah, it's a full regenerative. Full regenerative situation. They feed the cows uh, seaweed. I mean, she just was so impressed 
that, you know, when we, she goes out to buy milk, we end up with Strauss milk in our house. Even though we think it tastes delicious and actually have a milk we like maybe differently. But uh, when George is in charge, she makes that decision with her parents' pocketbook, which is great. But the idea is that, um, you know, I think these things do matter. We just have to have repetition. I definitely, you know, stopped using moose eventually with chloroformcarbons when, uh, you know, after I heard the message a lot. And I, I just feel like we don't, kids don't get enough of that. Another message that I've been hammering is encouraging young people and, and old people too. We really need to get politically active. Yeah. And we can talk about all these small individual changes, but the truth is, and those things matter because culture change matters and mindset change matters. But to really achieve what we need to achieve as quickly as we need to, we need government policies and we need to put pressure on politicians. We need to elect politicians that are climate friendly. And I think young people can have a big role in that. The Sunrise Movement, for instance, is now the world's largest youth movement fighting for environmental health. And they have a powerful political platform that they're building because they are so large. And you can, you know, join up a hub in your area. You can start one. And you, I also think this message, like, you don't always have to create your own new thing. Mm. You should join these organizations that are already doing the work to figure out, you know, which races are so tight and they really need you to be phone banking because it's going to be the difference between you know, a candidate that gets it on the environment and one that really is kind of in the pocket of business or, you know, whatever it's going to be. That's so interesting. So I, I would just like to say, I know that you set out and did write this book for sort of a young adult audience, but I have really enjoyed reading both of your books just personally, even though I'm in middle age as well. You're, you're, um, you're a crappy teenager too. Crappy teenager deep down. But I, I just want to say that I think it's both your books are inspirational and appropriate for any age. And in this era of too many things going on and too many distractions, I have to say that having some like nice digestible chapters to read that are inspirational and informative has been really nice. I call so. it a snacking book. Snacking. Snack. That's exactly it's a snacking it. book. Yeah. Because you just read a couple chapters and I do think a lot of adults are getting a lot out of it. I, I'm always finding, you know, women coming up to me and saying, I bought this for my daughter or my niece or my granddaughter, but I ended up you know, reading it too. And it really, I found it really interesting. If you're, uh, if this is a way of viewing the world, you know, like our producer here, Lisa, has been carrying around her own straws, these metal straws, reusable straws, and her own bottle for and a million years. She's been doing this. I mean, we are, we are all pro Yeti reusable cup here, but it's just sort of a way of seeing the world. And we used to give her a lot of crap about the number of dolphins she must have because there haven't been straws jammed into the breathing holes of dolphins over the world. But it really did impact us a lot. And we started to make these different changes and things. If this is a way of seeing the world, what would you go back and sort of, or have you started to, and Juliet said you made some changes. We kind of talked about that, but are you looking at problems around writing or has this, have you started to see a set of other issues that sort of need to come to light out of this? I mean, one of the things that I just have always been really interested in is mental health. And I think that this mm. whole new issue of kind of existential angst and climate anxiety is becoming very real for young people. 
And it's a big problem to be constantly seeing how your world is not safe and you can't depend on the future. And, you know, they're talking about not wanting to have kids. 40% of young people that answered this Lancet study in 2021 said that they would consider not having kids because of their fears about the future of the planet. And that to me is just, that really knocked me over the head when I heard that because what a thing to rob our kids of. Is and we're already they at could have their point. Own family. The research has just come out that we're actually not at a replacing capacity in the United States for, for the first time in like our nation's history where population is shrinking. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. Yeah, that is really interesting. Well, Di, I'm a huge fan of you and a huge fan of this book. Where can our listeners buy a copy for their daughter, friend, cousin, you name it? Husband. It's an amazing graduation present, I would like to say, with graduation yes. season approaching. So where can people find your book and then sort of follow this whole journey and learn more about the amazing women you feature in the book? I also have to plug the book as the best bat mitzvah gift ever. <laughs> so I think it's just such a great, it would be so great to give this or for the people, the person having the bat mitzvah to give it out to their, you know, you have to give a little thing for them to take home. This could be like, instead of a succulent plant, you could give them this really inspiring book. But the book is available online at places like Bookshop and Barnes and Noble, Amazon, of course, and Local bookstores, independent bookstores support them. I always say if you can go into the bookstore and buy it and ask them to order it if they don't have it, it's better for me, the author, and it's better for the planet. And my website, www.dianacap.com, now has a section on it called Resources. And one of the tabs under there is Things Teens Can Do. And I'm generating this really amazing list of ideas for teens. And one of the best ones I've found is a site that will pay teens to create TikTok content about environmental issues. As long as they have 200 followers or more, they will pay you per post or for Instagram posts. Does and that age also, out? Do you have to be a teen? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, you I think know, you got to be a teen. Uh, I'm yeah. sorry. You got to be a teen. <laughs> That's amazing. That's so cool. That's really cool. But I, you know, I tell you how to write, a, you know, I give like a sample letter of what you would write to the head of a company if you want to complain about their packaging or, you know, different organizations that are every time you click on a certain web search, you plant a tree. So these are just great things to know about that people can, the young people can get excited and they're looking for a way in. I really believe that. They want to do something and they're just a little bit intimidated and don't know where to start. I think that's the truth of it. And so many ways in, you don't have to solve all the problems, just solve or improve one aspect of yeah, one problem. That's what's community. so cool about all the women in this book is they've just sort of chosen an area and they're focusing on that. It's really- I, I went to one school in Chicago, a private girls school, and they were wearing, they wear these plaid skirts. And they told me that every two years, the school changes the plaid. And so then they can't pass down the skirts to the younger kids. So that was one of the things we had a great conversation and they were all fired up to go address their administration and demand an end to that. And that was pretty exciting for me. Like they found something in their little world that, you know, they actually could change. And then they could start like a closet at the school where they would have a, 
you know, their own little exchange for old uniforms. And I thought that was a great idea. Much to the chagrin of my daughters, I have always been a fan of school uniforms and sad that my kids aren't required to wear them. And I feel like there's 100% an environmental argument for it. So, you know, it's too late for them. They're already going to be gone to college, but... No, it's just Man, it's I mean, if, black if tights, every every kid, and, uh, like if every a, kid just had to have, <laughs> yeah, if you just had to have two outfits that you're allowed to wear to school, that would probably make black an impact hoodie, in fat in fast fashion. Hoodie. That's for sure. It would. I be just want to say, personally, I find myself in the summer, the last few summers, hiking through the woods with you, hearing about what you're working on, and it is always impressive when someone I know says they're going to do something and then they actually do it and they come out into the world. There's so much distance between the cup and the lip and you <laughs> seem to land the plane. I'm going to mix my metaphors every single time you take cup the Cup and sip. the lip, land the plane. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I just can't shine enough. Love it. Like pulling this off yet again, it is such a wonderful book and uh, it's really fun to see you get some, you know, some acknowledgement for uh, taking a swing at what is a big problem. Thanks, Kelly. It really has been fun. I'm really having a good time out talking about it and meeting the kids and it's awesome. Congratulations. And thank you again, Di. Loved having you on. Thank you. Awesome. See you guys very soon. Thank you for listening to the Ready State Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, check out all our episodes here or at thereadystate.com. And be sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. Check us out and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Ready State. Until next time, cheers, everyone. You got it. You better stop.